Hi, welcome to More Life the Reentry Podcast, a podcast about offender reentry reform and advocacy. I'm your host, Vinkidia Garner. Thank you for joining me today. So, on today's episode, we're going to be talking about community supervision and how community supervision can impact reentry outcomes. And with me today is an individual who has a lot of expertise in this particular area. So, I'm going to go ahead and introduce our guest for today. So our guest for today is Dr. Jennifer Ortiz, who is a associate professor at Indiana University in the Southeast region. Did I say that part correctly? Correct. Yes. Yes, ma'am. Okay. So Dr. Ortiz earned her PhD in criminal justice reform from John Jay College of Criminal Justice. Her research interests center on structural violence within the criminal justice system with a focus on reentry post-incarceration. She maintains a firm commitment to civil service and activism. She served as president of the New Albany, Indiana Human Rights Commission from 2018 to 2021. Dr. Ortiz currently serves as an executive board member for Mission Behind Bars and Beyond, which is a Kentucky-based nonprofit reentry organization and as executive counselor for the Division of Convict Criminology of the American Society of Criminology. Um, So we're really grateful to have Dr. Ortiz on our show today to talk about this topic. Um, It's something, an area that I particularly like is community supervision and that I've just been trying to learn a little bit more about. So I'm just really grateful that you're on the show to talk to us today. Thank you for having me. Well, before like we get into like our actual topic of today, I always like to kind of just get an idea of what drew people into like this area of research or just this line of work. Would you be comfortable with explaining or talking to us about that? Absolutely. So uh, I was um, born and raised in East New York, Brooklyn. It's traditionally very high crime, high substance use area. And uh, many of the men in my family cycled in and out of incarceration throughout, uh, throughout my lifetime. And so I never really understood what they were experiencing Prison was something people went to and came home and no one really talked about what happened in prison. Um, and no one really talked about why they failed or, you know, maybe what issues were causing them to then re-enter, you know, correctional facilities. And then uh, when I was 21 years old, uh, I met my husband who's formerly incarcerated. Um, and so I've been on this re-entry journey with him for 14 years now. And so I've gotten to see firsthand a lot of the structural issues within uh, re-entry and incarceration. And so I decided to explore it when I moved to Southern Indiana and kind of see uh, were the experiences people were having in New York, where I'm from, the same as what people were having here in, you know, in a very conservative, predominantly white uh, Midwestern location. Um, and so it really was just a question of what is happening here? Is, is reentry the same here as it is in other places? And so that's what sparked it. And um, I am at the tail end of of a five-year re-entry study uh, in this region of the country. Um, and so that's really what uh, what got me motivated. It was that personal experience of the men in my family, but then also uh, being married uh, to a formerly incarcerated man who was on parole at the time that I met him. Um, so yeah, that's what inspired it. And I, I love when people can take a very like personal experience and utilize it for something that's so much bigger um, and to bring an impact um, in a very different way. So I do thank you for sharing that and um, and especially how it is translated into your research and your work today. Um, so I guess if we want to just like go into our conversation, 
Um, like I said, we'll be talking about community supervision and how that can impede the reentry process. Um, so I think a very important thing to start with is some people may not understand what community supervision means or may not even have an idea of like what that is. Do you care to like define or share what that means? So community supervision, um, there are really two main types. One is probation and one is parole. So probation is an alternative to incarceration. A person is convicted of a crime or they plead guilty to a crime. And instead of sending them to prison, we put them on probation. Through the probation program, they have to meet with their, with their probation officer on a regular basis, which is set by the probation officer. It could be once a week. It could be once a month. Um, if it's a less severe offense, it might be once every two months. And the goal in theory of probation is that the officer is supposed to help the person in any way they can to avoid the person reoffending, committing a new crime. Uh, now, parole is different in the sense that parole is for people who have been incarcerated in correctional facilities. So a person commits a crime, they're convicted or they accept a plea to that crime, and they're sent into a correctional facility to serve a sentence. Um, and then while they're serving the sentence, they can earn early release from prison onto parole. So basically, let's say we sentence someone to five years in or two and a half to five years in prison. What we're saying is after two and a half years, you can earn early release if you've met certain standards. Maybe that's completing certain programming. Maybe that's, um, you know, not having any disciplinary infractions uh, during your incarceration. And then you're released early. Uh, but you're still monitored. You basically still have to serve the rest of your sentence. You just serve it in the community. And so you have a parole officer, which is similar to a probation officer in the sense that they will monitor if you're working, it, uh, where you live, um, if you're getting education, if you're meeting program requirements. Like, let's say the person is a substance addicted individual. Um, you know, are they going to uh, NA meetings, Narcotics Anonymous? Are they engaging in some type of uh, substance abuse prevention program? And the difference between probation and parole, again, is Probation is instead of incarceration. Parole is after incarceration, the person's being released early. Parole restrictions are usually far more um, intense as to what a person can and can't do than probation. Um, because if you're probation eligible, it's probably a lower level offense or this is your first time committing a crime. Whereas parole, um, at least in theory, is that you were dangerous enough to be placed inside of a prison um, and we're and, and we're letting you out early, so we have far more restrictions um, on what the person can't can't can and can't do uh, on parole. So for our conversation that we're going to have, it's safe to say that when we're referencing community supervision, we're going to be talking about individuals on parole or things related to parole, correct? Yes. Uh, generally speaking, it would be people who are on parole. However, there are some states like Indiana that have abolished parole. So the person comes out of so the person cannot earn early release from prison, but there's still some supervision component after um, after their release, uh, which in in Indiana is called post release supervision. But it's basically parole by a different name. So. So, yes, for our intents and purposes, if we're talking about reentry uh, specific, we'd be focusing more on parole than on probation. Okay, yes, that makes sense. Um, so do other states have that, or is Indiana the only one that has that? Are you um, I believe we're at 17 states that have abolished parole. Um, Indiana was just the first uh, to abolish it. They abolished it in 1977. Okay. Um, and if you want, we can talk about why uh, there was this push to abolish parole, but 
some states have abolished parole. Some states have a mixed system where certain crimes you can get parole, but certain crimes you can't get um, early release. Um, it's a really complicated system. So it, it's really a state by state uh, issue. That sounds like a, a larger conversation, too, that can, <laughs> can happen, too, there. Absolutely. Okay. Well, look, I would definitely like to explore that some. Um, um, is that like something that we would talk about now or is that later on like a, a recommendation suggestions type thing? Well, we can talk about it if you if you want to talk about the history of parole, because I, I think it nicely transitions into uh, the abolition of parole in certain states. Mm -hmm. uh, beginning in this tough on crime 1970s era so it's really up to you okay well I will say let's hold it for a second because I actually did want to talk about like the history of parole but there was one thing that I wanted to ask you first of just to give our audience an idea of who we are talking about and um, how many people we are talking about so like just like stats that I know of like if we're thinking that 2.3 million people are incarcerated in the United States, and we know that approximately 95% of them are going to return um, to some community or some neighborhood. When we think about in the context of like community supervision, how many people are we talking about that are on community supervision in some form? So our most, our most recent numbers, which um, come from the end of 2020, and I, I emphasize that because the pandemic affected all of our stats, right? So as states began to release more people, we saw dramatic changes in probation and parole that may level out later, right? So all of us to say, take this all with a, take what I'm about to say with a grain of salt because it may change. So for year end 2020, we had um, just shy of 4 million people on community supervision. So according to the Bureau of Justice, uh, 3,890,400 adults were on community supervision at the end of uh, 2020. Now that's actually, while it's a huge number, um, it's about a 7% decline from two years earlier. And that's why COVID becomes important because there was a push within criminal justice to basically get people out of the system because of the spread of, uh, of COVID. Um, and so some people were just released early from their parole requirements. Right. The parole officers didn't want to meet one on one with people who could potentially have COVID. So there was this push if they're lower level or maybe they've been on parole for a while. Let's just get them off parole. So while I want to say that the decline gives me a little hope, uh, I am a little weary that once we kind of flatten back out from COVID, that we'll see um, this increase in community supervision again. And this community supervision is encompassing both probation and parole, right? Correct. Those numbers? Correct. So if we're looking at um, just parole, we have 851,000, or sorry, 862,000 people on parole. Mm -hmm. um, so of that 3.8 million, about 3 million are probation and 890,000 are, uh, are parole. So a lot of people having somewhat of the same similar experiences on community supervision. Um, still Correct. a lot of people coming and that need to be reintegrated back into society, right? Absolutely. So um, we know that on average, we release 10,000 people from a correctional facility every week in our country. So um, typically about 600,000 people are released every year from a correctional facility. It's a significant portion of people um, being released. 
Yeah, and I didn't. I actually have never heard the statistic. Um, actually, well, let me not say never. It's um, something that I've newly found out about about the ten thousand per week, um, and that's a lot of people that are coming out and that need assistance. Um, so I guess going back to your point earlier, if we could just spend a little bit of time talking about the history of community supervision, where did this come from? What was the original intentionality of it? Um, just kind of information there. Do you, do you want me to talk about probation and parole? Because they emerged in for different reasons. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. That's fine. Okay. If they so, merge together, then yeah. So um, the history of probation comes from Boston. Um, there was this Boston businessman named John Augustus, and he saw that many people were uh, being arrested for minor things like public drunkenness. And he decided that he wanted to go to the court and request that the court allow him to supervise one of these individuals rather than put them in um, in jail uh, or, or prison. And so the court says yes. The court agrees, um, and the judge allows John Augustus in 1841 to pay the $3.76 fine for public drunkenness that this person had and then to take the person in. And John Augustus promised the court, I will bring him back sober and employed. Um, and he did. Uh, he was successful for that one individual. And so John Augustus would go on to help 2000 individuals in his lifetime. Now, he's not a CJ employee. He's not, you know, a, a member of the government. He's just a businessman trying to help people. And that serves as um, as the catalyst for our creation of probation, creating an alternative to incarceration. And it quickly spreads because John Augustus is so successful. Um, out of the two 2000 people he helps, only four of them are are rearrested. And so the court systems think, well, this is great, right? Um, this is much better than just taking them in jail. And so we see probation kind of uh, spread across states after John Augustus' program. Now, parole actually is not an American idea. It comes from Ireland. So Sir Walter Crofton was the director of the Irish penal system. And he de he decided to develop a treatment program in the 1850s where incarcerated people would work through stages of their incarceration and eventually earn early release. Uh, so it was three stage program. On the first stage, they were completely segregated from everyone else and they were forced to work um, and they were given training uh, on a specific uh, field of employment. Um, the second stage was kind of a transitional phase between complete segregation and being in general what what we would call general population in prison, being around everyone else. Um, and then uh, they would learn to work with other people on these same employment tasks. And then in phase three, if they had successfully passed phase one and phase two, they would earn early release. Uh, he would start to give them a, what he called a ticket of leave, where they could leave the prison for a certain amount of time. Um, so it's kind of parallel to our work release programs today, where a person who's incarcerated can be released into the community to work. Um, it's kind of um, the same model um, that we adopted from Ireland. And so we see this model occurring in Ireland. And actually, in the late 1800s, Michigan becomes the first state to have a parole system, um, a way of earning early release, with the thought being that rehabilitation was the goal. And if they were rehabilitated already, then why, why keep them incarcerated? And, yet, and to understand this, you have to understand that the criminal justice mindset in the, in the late 1800s was not lock them up and throw away the key. 
The model was more of a medical model. Can we treat the person? Can we rehabilitate them and then uh, release them? So Michigan's the first. It's relatively um, successful. In 1910, the federal government creates its, its first parole um, at the federal level. And by 1930s, every state has a parole uh, function, uh, has a parole department or some version of parole. And it's working really well, right? Um, this notion that people just need help on the outside, right? We give them help on the inside, we let them out, and now they have a dedicated officer to help them on the outside and kind of continue uh, the rehabilitation that was happening in prisons. However, um, like with everything else in criminal justice, the 1970s ushers in this tough on crime um, view of criminal justice. We declare the war on drugs, we declare the war on crime, and we start incarcerating a lot of people. And the notion becomes, we should no longer rehabilitate them, we should just punish them. It becomes punishment for punishment's sake. And so a lot of um, conservative critics start to critique parole. Why are we giving these, you know, quote unquote criminals a benefit? Why are we letting them out early? You know, they, sh um, they should serve out their full sentence. The reason why they don't learn is because they is they get out early. And that, and that becomes the attack on parole, that serves as a catalyst, right? And so in 1977, uh, Indiana becomes the first state to abolish parole. So what happens now in, in Indiana and in 17 other states is instead of getting a sentence of two and a half to five years, where after two and a half years you can earn release, you would just get five years. You can't um, be released early. And there's a whole host of problems behind that because now there's no incentive to engage in programming. There's no incentive to get an education while you're incarcerated. There's no incentive uh, to really do anything meaningful for your own rehabilitation because there's no benefit of it. You're still going to serve the same five years. Um, and then several other states, you know, follow suit. We're up to 17 states that have abolished parole. Um, the parole abolition model, or at least the movement, has significantly slowed down since the 1970s. Um, <clears throat> but this tough on crime uh, narrative that emerges in the 1970s still dominates the way that parole is implemented in the states that have uh, parole, meaning that we are very quick to revoke people, uh, to send them back to prison uh, for even, even the most minor um, offenses. So it's kind of a history of how we go from a medical model of punishment to this more a uh, retributive model uh, of punishment. So, yeah, and like what I heard from there too, also if I could just like summarize is we were on a, we had like a treatment approach and then somewhere, like you said, when we got those narratives of we really need to be tough on crime, we transitioned to like this idea of punishment and we need to punish these individuals. Um, and so I guess that makes me think of like when we're thinking about mass incarceration um and just like recidivism in general and I know we'll get into this a little bit later but how are we seeing community supervision contribute to some of these like mass basically to mass incarceration absolutely no uh you are a hundred percent correct right it's this notion of punishment just for punishment's sake and I think it's really important for our listeners to understand what's happening in our country because 1970 seems so long ago. But, you know, the the 1960s and really in the 50s, starting in the 50s, 
there's this fear amongst middle-class white America that we're losing the moral fabric of our country, right? The civil rights movement emerges, the gay rights movement em emerges, the women's rights move, uh, movement really takes full force for all women. And there's this sense of we are losing control and we being middle and, and upper-class white America. And so uh, these shifts that happen are not in response to growing crime rates. They're, they're in response to just the fear uh, that these populations that have been historically marginalized are now gaining power. And there has to be a mechanism to stop them from gaining more power. And so that changes the entire view of our criminal justice system. And from 1970 until 1990, we have what is known as the blackening of prisons, where in the 60s and 70s, the majority of people incarcerated were actually white. And then we see this shift of the disproportionate impact, uh, the, rather disproportionate incarceration of people of color. Um, and it's because of all of those movements that are happening in the 60s and 70s, right? So I really want to emphasize, we didn't make parole tougher or prison tougher because crime was going up. We made it tougher in response to these social movements that were really um, shaking up uh, middle-class America. We see mass incarceration come, uh, you know, in the 1980s and uh, 1990s, but it's not in response to increases in crime. It's in response to these social movements. So what I like to call they were they were stirring the pot is what it sounds like. They were shaking the tables a little bit. Yeah. Um, okay. And, you know, I've never like seen it from this perspective, which is why I think it's just like such an interesting conversation, um, to have. But when you think about those social movements and, you know, like you said, the social movements weren't in response to the crime rates or, um, anything like that. These were people trying to get their rights, um, and, you know, trying to be heard. And so when we think about people who are, um, how, you know, abandoning rehabilitation or just the original causes of not, I guess not causes, but intentionality of community supervision and where we are now. Um, what, what do we, I don't know, what do we not necessarily, what do we do from here? But, um, what am I asking you right now? Hold on just a second. Um, what am I asking you right now? Are you asking how has it changed? Yes, that's what I'm trying to get at. Is like how has it changed? Uh, well, um, one is because we're seeing so many more people be put on community supervision than um, than existed in the 60s and 70s. We have uh, officers who have very high caseloads. Um, you might have a parole officer or a probation officer that has 200 individuals on their caseload, and they have to meet with these people you know, regularly. And so we've seen a shift away from officers trying to help individuals, connect them with resources, maybe have one-on-one -on -one conversations with them, check in on how they're doing as a human being, to what I to, to what we lovingly call the trail them, nail them, and jail them model, um, where where the officer's only role is to monitor the person until they find something wrong that they've done to send them back to jail, right? So you know, trail them, nail them, and jail them. Uh, and so it's uh, parole and probation have gone from more of a social work rehabilitative model to more of a law enforcement function. So it's a completely different view uh, of what their function is um, in our society. Originally, we believe them to be like John Augustus, 
they were going to get them help. They were going to get them a job. They were going to, you know, get them sober um, and work one-on-one with them to a model where parole and probation officers are just another branch of law enforcement, right? The only goal is to punish you when you do something wrong, not to really um, benefit you. And this isn't to bash parole and uh, probation officers. I think a lot of them go into the job with really good intentions. I think a lot of them want to help people. But once you're in that culture, once you're in that institution, uh, you are socialized into believing in this kind of more law enforcement model. Um, so like I have interviewed former parole officers who left the job because they wanted to help people and realized, oh, my job isn't to help people. My job is to punish people. And I don't really like that. Um, I don't like that function. Um, so that's really so it's medical model versus a law enforcement model. And we have a very heavy law enforcement model today. What I was um, going to ask you was if you could just talk to us a little bit about how does that um you know, the function and the role of the work that they do or like the law enforcement model that you were discussing um, impact the relationship between the person who was on parole and the actual parole officer? Well, this law enforcement approach to community supervision really ruins this notion of trust between the officer and the person that, that they're in theory supposed to be helping. So if they're in theory, supposed to help the person, uh, you know, stay on the right path, so to speak, or, you know, maintain employment or you know, successfully reintegrate in, into society. And their only function is trying to find the one wrong thing the person does to send them back. Then for the probationer or the parolee, they do not view their officer as someone there to help them, right? They view the officer as an extension of the carceral system. Um, they're just like the COs. They just want to, uh, they're just like the, the correctional officers. They just want to get me in trouble. They just want to find something to like, uh, to, to just throw me back in prison. They're not here to help me. So there becomes this, um, antagonistic relationship between these two people who should be working in conjunction to help this person. I also think that indoctrinating uh, parole officers into this law enforcement model makes them view the people that they're supposed to be helping as bad people, right? This is just a guy who eventually is just going to mess up. Eventually, I'm just going to throw him back in. And it limits their, their ability to provide any meaningful help to that person. So this law enforcement model doesn't create any type of trust or relationship between the person, between the officer and the person that they're trying to help. It becomes more so the officer is here to punish me. I don't like my officer. Therefore, um, you know, I'm I'm just going to go in and do what I have to do. I'm going to pee in the cup. I'm going to check the box and I'm going to move forward. And I also think officers have this negative view of the person that they're supposed to be trying to help. Right. Because. Now the person is just a bad person that um, that will eventually end up um, inside of inside of a correctional facility again. So there's a lot of cynicism amongst officers, even when the person is attempting to um, do the right thing. So we kind of see some even more of those like stigmatizing attitudes that are coming out as well of these individuals are, you know, they're just going to be repeating this crime again um and really just away from what you were talking about before of that like rehabilitation model right absolutely and and this cynicism amongst officers and this view of people as inherently bad and therefore you know deserving of more punishment leads to really high revocation rates amongst parolees 
So a a revocation is when when the officer determines that they want to send you back to prison. And in some states like California, for example, a third of their correctional population is there for some type of community supervision violation. And we're seeing similar trends in states like Pennsylvania. So it's happening in both, you know, these traditionally conservative and liberal states are seeing large influxes of people coming in to prison, not because they committed a new crime, but because they broke some rule of probation or parole, such as you know, missing their curfew. Um, and because officers are cynical of these people, they don't want to give them a second chance. They don't want to allow them to uh, do the right thing. Yeah, and I know some of your work that you've done, you've talked about um, there are particular mechanisms that kind of underlie this guaranteed return to incarceration. Um, do you care to talk about that a little bit? Because I feel like that's kind of what you're alluding to here, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. So, I think it's easy for us to look at people on uh, on parole and just say, oh, well, they went back to prison because they really messed up. When the reality is that that's not necessarily the case. Supervision has a lot of restrictions and rules that people must follow that don't necessarily make sense. So, for example, if you're on parole, your parole officer can set like an APM uh, curfew for you. So you have to be inside of your house at, at 8 p.m. regardless of how old you are. So imagine you're, you're, you know, you're a 50 year old man and now you've got this person telling you, hey, you have to be inside the house at uh, eight o'clock at night. Even though there's no real reason why we would want you inside at, you know, at, at 8 p.m., you could easily go commit a crime at 2 p.m., right? So there's no real logic behind why they have curfews. But there's also restrictions such as um, you have to pay to be on parole in in many states. So they charge you a fee for your own supervision. So for example, in the state of Kentucky, that's usually between 50 and $75 a month. So now you have someone who is released from prison, they have a criminal record and they can't find a job, but they're expected to somehow pay to be on parole. Then they, they don't only have to pay to be on parole, they have to pay for their own drug tests. So if the officer tells them to pee in a cup, they have to pay for that drug test. Um, if they're mandated to, let's say, go to anger management classes, they have to pay for those classes. If they owe restitution to the victim of the crime, they have to pay restitution. Um, there's just so many fees that pile on top of the person. And many of the people I interviewed in Indiana and Kentucky were paying between $300 and $800 a month in criminal justice fees. And that's a lot for people who are pushed into low-wage uh, positions, such as you know the service industry. Um, or uh, maybe even retail. They're, they're pushed into these low-wage jobs and then being forced to have to pay all of these fees. And another issue with uh, community supervision, which is contradictory of itself, is that you have to maintain employment as a condition of your supervision. However, you also have to meet with your parole officer during normal business hours as a condition of your uh, of your supervision. So if you're able, if you're lucky enough to find a uh, a job, and your uh, and and your shift is nine to five Monday through Friday, like a traditional employment opportunity, you have to miss work sometimes once a week in order to go to your parole officer um, to actually meet to actually meet up with them. And the date and time of your meeting with your parole officer is set by the officer, not by you. And there's very little consideration for the people um, and their own schedules. So if I don't have a job, I can get sent back to prison. But if I miss a meeting with my officer because I'm at work, 
I can also go back to prison. So it creates like this, this impossible situation to actually be successful, right? So debt is a problem. Unrealistic uh, restrictions such as curfews. Um, if you're on parole, you uh, you can be banned from drinking alcohol, even if you're an adult, even if you don't have a substance abuse um, disorder. You have to pay, uh, you have to pay tons of fees, and then sometimes uh, you'll have two or more requirements that actually conflict with each other. So you cannot possibly meet uh, all the restrictions uh, set by your uh, parole officer. And then whether you're returned to prison or not is, uh, is at the discretion of the officer. So if you have an officer who's kind of earlier in uh, in their career and they're still looking more towards a social work model of rehabilitation, you may get a second or third chance if you you know break a rule or can't pay a fee. But if you have an officer who's very cynical, maybe been on the job 10, 15 years, they they might turn around and just send you back the first time they that you uh, violate one of these restrictions. And so it's really easy uh, to end up back inside for even the for even the, the smallest non-criminal um, infractions. And so that's really what you know what I talk about in that piece, um, invisible enclosure, that the formerly incarcerated are, are walking around in in these invisible prisons, right? Because they're still being controlled heavily by the criminal justice system, even though they're you know allegedly free. Yeah, and I'm actually glad you said that because it seems like a lot of um, what I'm hearing about community supervision is about control and uh, the recidivism rates that we are seeing. Is it, I guess, is it safe to say like the, um, I don't know, like particular stats on like recidivism rates right now, but um, high recidivism rates can be contributed to some of these concerns of or these issues in community supervision? Absolutely. So we have about a nationwide, about a 67% recidivism rate, you know, three years post-release. So that's two out of three people who are released will return to a correctional facility um, within the first three years of their release, which indicates to us that the system is failing, right? It can't be that all of these individuals are just, you know, quote unquote, bad people. Um, they're operating within a system that really doesn't allow for success, even amongst amongst the most motivated um, individuals. And I've interviewed people who have openly admitted to selling drugs in order to pay all of these criminal justice fees because there's less of a likelihood of being caught for selling drugs than there is for your parole officer to know that you're not paying your fees. Right. So it's like if, if I don't pay my fees, I can go back to prison. So I'll sell drugs to pay my fees. But I could also go back to prison for selling drugs. And so we place them in these really impossible situations, uh, which which should be unconstitutional, right? Because uh, the the U.S. Supreme Court barred debtors' prisons. Like you can no longer incarcerate someone for owing money. However, if you owe money to the criminal justice system, you can be reincarcerated, right? So these uh, so this portion of our population that's that's in the criminal justice system is being uh, subjected to something that is actually illegal for the state to do to the rest of us. And impossible. <laughs> I think that was like something that you said in there. It just seems very impossible. Like you said, if you have somebody nine to five business hours, that's, I mean, you have to see your parole officer during that time, but you also have to work during that time. Or if you have a curfew at eight o'clock, but you you have a job that works overnight. Um it, it just seems quite impossible to meet those expectations as well as continue to, you know, just 
go through the other demands of reentry that are required. Absolutely. Yep. Um, so I guess like I know the title, like so the title that we have here for today is, you know, the system is not broken, it's intentional. Um, and I think we've explored a lot of that um here today. But can you just explain to us what do you mean by that and um why, you know, I guess not necessarily why you say that, but you've because you've talked about it, but just explain to us what that means. Yeah. So there's this French theorist named uh, Wilquant, uh who has this theory of the four peculiar institutions. And so he argues that historically uh, the U.S. government has developed peculiar institutions to control the, ba- the black population. Right. And with the first being chattel slavery. So once we outlaw slavery with the Emancipation Proclamation, or at least slavery outside of prisons, um, we developed the uh, Jim Crow South segregation laws um, to control and marginalize and oppress the black population. Once uh, Jim Crow segregation becomes illegal, we see the birth of these ghettos, right? Modern day ghettos were not created by chance. It's not a moral failing of the people inside those communities. Historically, if you were a black person, you could not live amongst white people. So you were forced into what we call black belts. These were designated areas within any particular community or city or town where black people were allowed to live. And they were only allowed to live there largely because they provided services such as housekeeping or farming for the white population. But they're forced into these communities. Now, these communities are severely underserved. Their schools are severely underfunded. And so we have a lot of concentrated poverty. And those black belts, if you lay a map over black uh, of today's you know, high crime, high substance abuse areas over traditional black belts, they're the exact same jurisdictions. However, once segregation by race becomes illegal following the, uh, the Fair Housing Act in the 1970s, we see the birth of mass incarceration. So and and what and, and what we call the blackening of prisons, the major uh, prisons become predominantly places for people of color. So Waquant argues that the U.S. intentionally creates these institutions in order to oppress and marginalize uh, the black population. Um, and I, I would extend that a little bit to include lower income communities um, in general uh, of all races. I argue that the prisoner reentry industry, uh, the birth of all of these horrible, um, you know, fee-based systems and impossible restrictions is really just the fifth peculiar institution. So as we start to see declines in incarceration beginning in about 2010, 2012, we start to see the proliferation of more community supervision, more privatized community supervision, um, more intense models of um Supervision, such as you know, uh, using electronic uh, model ankle, sorry, electronic ankle monitors on people that are on community supervision. And so, when I argue, when I say that the system is not broken, people like to say, "Well, we should reform the system. The system is broken. There's problems in the system." I argue that the system is working exactly as as it was designed to work to keep the surplus population economically and socially oppressed so that they cannot be successful. And that seems, that may seem like a radical um, idea, but if you really follow Waquant's argument, which which Michelle Alexander spells out in her book, The New Jim Crow, um, is actually very logical. It's the same groups that would have been slaves are the same groups that are facing mass incarceration and 
um, and this really oppressive prisoner reentry industry. So I argue really that the system is designed in a way to keep people stuck in the system, right? To keep this surplus population oppressed at the bottom. Um, and so that's why I say it's not broken, it's intentional, because if we really believe that the system was broken, there are very simple solutions to fix uh, community supervision if we really thought it was broken, but it's not broken. Um, the system serves its stated purpose, which is to oppress people of color and to oppress low-income individuals. Wow. Um, that was a lot. And I've never even, like you said, never even thought about that. And I will definitely have to go look for that book. Um, can you just say the name of that book again? So uh, Michelle Alexander's book is The New Jim Crow. Um, it mm -hmm. was very popular uh, like five or 10 years ago. Everyone was reading it when it first came out because of this argument that she made about mass incarceration being the new Jim Crow system. I essentially take her argument, which is in part taken from Laquant, who's a French sociologist, and I extend that um, to include a fifth peculiar institution. So I'm arguing as we incarcerate less people, we're just putting them in these oppressive, invisible enclosures uh, on the outside. And but we're still economically and socially oppressing them. Yeah, and I think that's a very powerful uh, extension of those arguments um, because when you I, when you think about it, that is what's happening. And when you think about the people that are cycling through this system, um, we know that, especially for people of color, that they make up a large majority of the prison population, even though they only represent, I know specifically for uh, Blacks, 13% of the actual U.S. population. Um and I'm not for sure for other uh, marginalized groups, but they're experiencing these same, uh, these are the groups that are experiencing the same difficulties prior when we had slavery and things like that, like you were saying. So it's a very powerful argument that I think people need to hear and um, people probably need to think about. And I know, like you said, at the end of your conversation was that if we did really think that the system is broken, that there are some very simple solutions. Um, but given, you know, your argument, what are what are you supposing that needs to be done or needs to be addressed? Um, how do we move forward, basically, is what I'm trying to ask. Well, one, um, and my biggest push is we should abolish any system that, or rather, we should abolish any, um, how do I say this? User-funded systems should, should not exist. And what I mean by that is we should not be charging people on probation and parole to be on probation and parole. The cost should not fall on them. The cost should fall on us as the taxpayer, as a state, because we're the ones who chose to uh, to incarcerate the person, right, rather than maybe a treatment program or something. And so user-funded systems actually make it so that the person is so overwhelmed and so indebted to the criminal justice system that they can't actually be free. So I'll give you an example. Um If you are mandated to a halfway house, a halfway house is like a step-down from your incarceration, right? So it's called halfway house because you're halfway home. So you are you are allowed to go out during the day to work and, and attend programming, and then you have to be locked down at night inside of that halfway home. If you are mandated to a halfway home in a state that has a user-funded system, you have to pay to be in that halfway home. And that can range from $50 a week to $200 a week. It just depends on the halfway home. So then 
um, when you're released, they start charging you immediately, whether you have a job or not. So if I am formerly incarcerated, I have a felony record, I am released. Week one, I owe the halfway home uh, director or the person who owns the halfway home money in that very first week, my first seven days post-release. Now I have to go find a job in, in, in order to pay this fee. If I have debt at the end of my term within the halfway home, so let's say a judge mandates me to a year and a half in a halfway home. If at the end of that year and a half, I owe the halfway home money, they will not release me. So that's a really cool system because now we are extending a person's contact with the criminal justice system based on money they owe rather than based on something that they did that, that would warrant more supervision. So my first thing is abolish any user-funded system. They should not be paying for this because their focus should be on not breaking the law, uh, dealing with their own mental health, dealing with finding a job, finding a place to live, really taking care of themselves so that they can be successful um, post-incarceration, right? So no user-funded systems. I think we need to change our parole model back to a more of a social work model. That's only possible if we hire social workers for those types of positions. I think that a social worker is far better suited to help someone being released from prison than a probation or parole officer ever will be because their view and their understanding of things like trauma, um, mental health are so much better than people who are currently doing this job, right? So rather than saying, where do you live? Where do you work? Pee in this cup. We should be saying, how are you doing this week? What are you facing? What issues do you see? How can I help you address those issues? That would be a much better um, model because then the person who is on who, who is on parole learns to view their officer as someone who is genuinely there to help them, which helps them build this uh, positive social bond with this officer that can then lead them to engaging in programming, um, engaging in education, rebuilding social bonds with their family. But that only happens if the officer changes how they view the person, which subsequently changes how the person views the officer, right? So people always say, you know, um, to get respect, you have to give respect. So if you respect that person and treat them like a whole functioning adult who just needs help navigating re-entering society, then you can actually um, help those people. Um, and then I would start to really reevaluate all of the restrictions we put on them and ask ourselves, do these restrictions make sense? And if they don't make sense for public safety and they don't make sense for the person, then we shouldn't have them. Right. I would argue that I, I do not believe in curfews for for adults. You know, if that person gets out of work at 6 p.m., they should be allowed to go take a walk in the park, go food shopping, do all of these things without having to fear running back home to be home at, you know, 8 o'clock at night. I also think we need to limit how many programs we force people into as part of a condition of their release. So if a person doesn't have a substance abuse disorder, they should not be mandated to substance abuse treatment, right? And I have found that sometimes people are. There is this kind of blanket approach to their reentry where, oh, you were in prison, you know, there must be some substance abuse disorder, therefore, you know, you're required to attend this program. Programming should be individualized to the person. And if we did an assessment, like a social worker would, of their individual needs, then we can only require them to go to programming that is required, that is necessary for their individual position. Um, <clears throat> so, the, so those are my big 
three, right? Get rid of user-funded um, systems, change how officers view um, the people that are on parole. And, and this can be done by training people or it can be done by hiring people that are not criminal justice majors that are uh, that are more in that social work, maybe even psychology realm. Um, and then reevaluating all of these restrictions for people that are on parole and probation and limiting them only to the ones that are absolutely necessary for public safety and that person's success. And I think those are all like really great um, things because you kind of covered up some very um Policy-related things that need to be changed, um, even some practice level, talking about, you know, training um, parole officers and just how to work with the population and even just changing the model that we're using. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit for people who are not necessarily in the lens or the realm of like policy or practice, they're just advocating, what can they do to kind of support these individuals um, that are kind of going through this process or that are on community supervision? I'll say one of two things. One is um, people should be in the trenches helping individuals that are on parole and probation. And what I mean by in the trenches is you should be helping them directly, right? Um, So as you mentioned in in the beginning, I sit on the the board of an organization called Mission Behind Bars and Beyond, Mission Behind Bars and Beyond, we have a mentorship model with the formerly incarcerated. So whenever someone applies for our program, they are assigned three to five mentors. And these mentors walk alongside of them during the first six months of their reentry. We will take them to um, a food pantry to pick up food. We will offer them cooking classes so that they can learn um you know, how to cook for themselves. You you would be amazed at how much knowledge people lose when they've been incarcerated for like a really long time, right? How do I cook if I've just had to go uh, to the chow hall uh, to get food every day? Um, we we will go with them to their parole office, uh, to their parole meetings, right? And we will introduce ourselves to their parole officer, like, hey, we're just here to help them. Um, and therefore try to build a relationship with that parole officer. Uh, we have a micro lending program where if a person is formerly incarcerated and needs a small amount of money, let's say to purchase steel toe boots for like a job or a small um, security deposit for like an apartment, we will lend them the money interest free and develop a, uh, a a payment plan that actually extends across multiple years so, so that they're never overwhelmed um, paying us back. We meet with them once a week and we uh, and we and we let them tell us. Uh, what they need. So they set their own weekly goals. What are your, you know, two or three or four goals in the next seven days? And then we hold them accountable. You know, if, if they didn't achieve the goal, why? Is there some way we can help you? And so there are a lot of organizations that are very small, nonprofit-based organizations where we are a 100% volunteer-based organization. And so we always need volunteers, right? Look for those opportunities where you can directly help someone's um reentry process. But the second thing, and I think this is really important, is we need to be advocating for different policies. And one of the things I do is I will send research to politicians. I will I will ask politicians to sit down and speak with me. Um, if I know that there is a bill before a state legislature that I either agree with or don't agree with, I will write letters. I will request meetings with the with the people who will inevitably vote on these things. Um, I will send them research that either supports or contradicts what they're trying to do. Because one thing that we often forget is 
politicians are not very educated. I mean, some of them are, but uh, some of them, you know, it's, it's just a high school education or, or they just have a bachelor's degree in a very specific field. And many of them have no idea what's actually happening in criminal justice. And so I think educating them becomes part of our responsibility as well. If we want to stop bad criminal justice policy from, from being created, right? So, uh, one, be on the ground level, look for these volunteer opportunities, look for ways you can help. Um, if you, if there's nothing in your area that's uh, similar to Mission Behind Bars and Beyond, um, you know, donating money, donating clothing, uh, to organizations that help the, uh, formerly incarcerated. And the second part is advocating for better policy, advocating for reform at that macro kind of structural level. Um, and, and, and sometimes, it works. I know people have this really negative view of politics, but one of the things Kentucky did in the past seven years since I've been here was that they established a division of, of reentry. So a division that's focused solely on reentry. And as a result of that division, um, we are seeing the implementation of new policies and practices that that will try to stem some of the issues I've been talking about. So, for example, uh, parole officers now and uh, are deterred from from incarcerating someone just because they owe money. Right. So this debt model um, and part of it was caused by the pandemic, but part of it was caused by people advocating for a change to this model. And, you know, now uh, I am currently piloting a reentry workbook inside of the Louisville Metro uh, prison, uh, jail rather, um, which is uh, hoping to have people identify what their individual needs are pre-release, right? So politics can be very depressing. It can make you lose hope, but you can still work to try to change things um, if you really want to. And sometimes that's having a public hearing on something, um, you know, emailing your your state um, representative or even your federal representative, even if there's someone you, that you don't agree with in terms of all their politics, sometimes you can find middle ground on things that you do agree with. Um, so, for example, when I was working to reinstate Pell Grants within prisons so that people in prison could um, go to college, I met with largely conservative right wing politicians because that's what exists in my area. And I brought them data and I said, look, this research says that education reduces recidivism. This research says it. We know it exists. We need to reinstate education in order to lower recidivism. And it worked. We have reinstated Pell Grants. And, and those conservative individuals that I met with voted in favor of reinstating Pell Grants. Even though I don't agree with them on 90% of their politics, we could agree on that one thing. And so um, don't lose hope in terms of advocating for things at that policy level. It is possible. It will take time. Um, it can't be exhausting and frustrating sometimes, but the end result um, is worth it. I want to say one thing before I like um, go into like all the different things that you discussed. I love how proactive you are. Um, Thank you. <laughs> I, I love that because um, I, I, I'm a very proactive person and um, that those are things that I really try to get into of um, what more can I do as an advocate to um, better support the individuals that are coming out of the system. And I think you provided some very great ways of which um, people in the audience um, that are listening can get involved and 
we all can just essentially just do more. And I do thank you for sharing that with us. Um, And I guess before we get off of here, I do want to ask like one thing. And this is a question I try to ask everybody, but if you could just, if there was one thing you wanted the audience to leave with today, what would that be? I would want them to leave with the notion that people who enter and re-enter the correctional system are not bad people. They're not monsters. They are human beings. They are our fathers and our mothers and our neighbors and our friends. And it it behooves all of us to help them because as we help them, we become better as a society. There's a lot of very smart, talented individuals sitting inside of prisons who just didn't have the same opportunities we've had. And we need to acknowledge that and then help them, right? Um, they're not monsters. They are human beings in need of help. And most of them are not the scary things you've heard about on the media. Most of them are not, you know, murderers. Most of them are not, you know, uh, child sexual offenders. Most of them are people who just did not have structural opportunity in their lifetime and they ended up there. Any one of us could end up in prison any day. And so we need to see ourselves in these people and empathize with them and really help them. Yeah, I think that is a great point. And um, something that I've tried to um, highlight a lot on my podcast, too, is that it could easily be one of us, um, given the right circumstances. Like you said, a lot of us have just had um, better opportunities than some of these individuals that didn't place us in the circumstances of which they were in. So I do appreciate you for sharing that with us. And I will like to say um, thank you for coming on and just sharing your expertise and, you know, talking to us about such a um, complicated and complex subject. Um, I'm sure like everybody will enjoy hearing like this perspective and it will definitely do some provoking, um, some thought provoking things for people. Um, and I'm just interested to hear what more people have to say about it. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. And, um, I know a lot of academic literature is hidden behind paywalls. So if you wanted to link to any of the, any of the pieces that, that we mentioned today, I can send you PDFs of those that you can link with your podcast in case any listener is interested in kind of learning more about what's happening. Yes, I definitely could do that. And I appreciate that because I do try to put information at the bottom um, to where people can learn more. Um, I definitely will make sure any um, articles that I receive are linked there. I will also try to find the, not try, I will find the link for the book that you t discussed in here as well and link that just in case people are interested in, you know, purchasing that and wanting to learn more. Um, and then I'll also put your information uh, as far as of like your social media that you provided, if you provided one and your uh, personal professional website at the bottom in case people wanted to um, inquire more about information. Um, but I do thank you for coming on and um, I thank you all for listening with us today. And as always, if you are interested in learning more about More Life and kind of the work that we are trying to do, you can follow us on More Life, the reentry podcast, and that's on Instagram. And as if you enjoyed this episode, just push that subscribe button at the top. Thank you.